Why do we do the things that we do, even the good things that we do? Last week we talked about that in connection with helping others, with giving, and giving generously, uh, sacrificially this week. Well, why do we pray? Why do we pray? Um, why would we take the time to uh, give praise, to give thanks, um, to offer up, to make confession or requests to God? Why do we do the things that we do? Why do we pray? Let me paint a scenario for you. It's a community group meeting. You're there. The, the time has come to that point of the meeting where the group is done sharing their requests and it's time to pray. Why do you pray? Why do you join in with the others to pray aloud in that moment? It, it might well be, it might but well be, because you, out of your, your deep-seated desire to respond to the Lord's work and initiative in your life and to press into that with some needs, perhaps, that you have as well, so you are joining in aloud in prayer. It could be that. It could also perhaps be that you're doing nothing more than parroting what others around you have been saying. It could also be that you desire to show off and perform and to sound good for those around you that are praying. See, it, it can look the same, right? Just like the giving for the wrong reasons, the right reasons can look the same. same is, the same is true also with praying. Why do we do the things that we do, even the good things that we do? Why do we pray? Jesus makes it very clear here that we have to examine our hearts on this issue. So if you have your Bible with you, I'd ask you to turn with me to Matthew chapter 6. Matthew chapter 6, verses 5 through 8. This is the first book of the New Testament, the first of the four Gospels that we have. The Gospel of Matthew, then Mark, then Luke, then John. We are in Matthew, Matthew 6, in the Sermon on the Mount, which is 5, 6, and 7. Uh, we are in Matthew chapter 6, verses 5 through 8. Matthew chapter 6, verses 5 through 8. Hear now the Word of God. And when you pray, you must not be like the hypocrites, for they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and at the street corners that they may be seen by others. Truly I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you pray, go into your room and shut the door and pray to your Father who is in secret. And your Father who sees in secret will reward you. And when you pray, do not heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do, for they think they will be heard for their many words. Do not be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you ask Him. Well, can we pray? Let's do that. Lord Jesus, uh, we can understand why the disciples would have asked of you, Lord, teach us to pray. Teach us to pray. On the one hand, it is so very instinctual for us, and yet it seems that we just get gummed up along the way so very, very easily. So we ask that you indeed would teach us to pray, that you would speak to us through your word into our hearts and give us ears that would deeply hear. In your name we pray. Amen. The Apostle is a 1997 film starring Robert Duvall as a preacher named Sonny Dewey. Now, Sonny Dewey, if you've seen the film, uh, you know that Sonny is, shall I say, a whole lot less than perfect, but he is oh so transparent. And I'm going to read with an animated sort of sense, I think, 
um, to you a prayer in the course of, of the film that will, I think, capture something of, of Sonny Dewey and his character. Somebody, I say somebody, has taken my wife. They've stolen my church. That's the temple I built for you. I'm going to yell at you because I'm mad at you. I can't take it. Give me a sign or something. Blow this pain out of me. Give it to me tonight, Lord God Jehovah. If you won't give me back my wife, give me peace. Give it to me. Give it to me. Give it to me. Give it to me. Give me peace. Give me peace. I don't know who's been fooling with me. You or the devil. I don't know. And I won't bring the human into this. He's a mutt. I'm not even going to bring him into it, but I'm confused. I'm mad. I love you, Lord, but I'm mad at you. I am mad at you. So deliver me tonight, Lord. What should I do? Now tell me. Should I lay hands on myself? What should I do? I know I'm a sinner and once in a while a womanizer, but I'm your servant. Ever since I was a little boy and you brought me back from the dead, I'm your servant. What should I do? Tell me. I've always called you Jesus. You've always called me Sonny. What should I do, Jesus? This is Sonny talking now. Now that might have made you a little uncomfortable. That might have made you a little nervous because that prayer, which it was a prayer, was so raw, so transparent, so honest, and it makes you nervous. I would argue that a case could be made that that's just the way we should learn to pray. And we're in the Gospel of Matthew. We're in the Sermon on the Mount. Um, we talked about this last week. As you see the transition from chapter 5 to chapter 6. Chapter 5, Jesus has been talking about, I don't know how else to put this, but moral righteousness. And he shifts from there to what we'll call religious righteousness in chapter 6. That is, he's moving from talking about our acts towards one another and our attitudes that underlie those acts to our outward expressions of devotion to God. So that's what I mean when I say moral righteousness transitioning over to religious righteousness. Um, he is addressing the three pillars of Judaism, not just in the first century, but really today as well. The three pillars of Judaism, uh, that would be almsgiving and prayer and fasting. Now last week we looked at the almsgiving part. Here this morning we're looking at prayer. And he gives three warnings. Well, yeah, one big warning, overarching, and read that in just a second. And then with each incremental step, with every one of the, each one of those pillars, he gives he, rem, he reminds us of what that warning is. Here's the overarching principle, verse one of chapter six, and he unpacks this then as the chapter unfolds. Beware of practicing your righteousness before other people in order to be seen by them, for then you will have no reward from your Father who is in heaven. So last week again, he's unpacking that pertaining to almsgiving. Coming alongside mercy ministry, giving to those who are in need. This week, what we're looking at is verses 5 through 8 as it begins, that section talking about prayer. What's the theme? The basic idea is this. It's somewhat similar to even what we looked at last week. Christ calls us to pray. Christ calls us to pray. That said, we are to do so in the right way in the right manner, with the right spirit. He calls us to pray, but we're to do so in the right way, the right manner, the right spirit. Now, 
to get at that, you can see this in your outline, I want to come at, unfold, well, unpack this, I guess I should say, um, sequentially. First, looking at what's the, what's the underlying assumption behind this instruction? What, what's the foundation? What is, what, what is he just assuming that we all understand as he's, he's saying this? That's the first thing. The second thing being, what, what's the problem then with what I'll call hypocritical prayer? And then thirdly, what's the problem with what we'll call pagan prayer? What's going on there, and what can we learn from that, and where are we trending in those things ourselves? So, first, the assumption behind the instruction. What's the foundation? What's going on there? What do we need to grapple with before we even get going with this? First off, understand that from a historical perspective, prayer is something, and corporate prayer, public prayer in particular, is something that has deep roots within Judaism. It was regarded as as really essential uh, to the faith. And you see that all through the Old Testament, examples again and again and again of both corporate, with a group, public, and private, individual prayer. You see it in the Psalms, you see it time and time again through different uh, parts of the narratives in the Old Testament. You get to the New Testament era, Jesus' day, you see the same, same thing, the call to corporate prayer three times a day. Uh, people were called to pray morning and afternoon and evening. I'm going to talk about that just in a little bit. And there were other settings in which you were called to pray as well, both corporately, publicly, and privately as well. So it's an essential thing, a, a pillar of within Judaism. The rationale behind this is, there's all kinds of things you could say about this, but I'll just make it this, boil it down to this, that God is a relational God. And we are made in his image according to his likeness for a relationship with him. Which is to say that even though the fall has damaged our prayer antennae, nonetheless, we are hardwired for this. Hardwired to communicate with him, or put another way, to pray to him. To pray to him. So, okay, so that's the deep roots, historical practice. You get to Jesus, he comes on the scene. What will he then say about this? He says some radical things. How ra- what exactly will he say about this? Well, he says it's still essential. He teaches on prayer. He models prayer. Now, I want you to think, I don't have time to really delve into this, but think with me just for a moment, the wonder of this. This is the eternal Son of God. The second person of the Trinity, God in the flesh, the God-man who prays who recognizes his need, and he prays. And not just occasionally, but continually, he prays. Why? Because there is no relational distance between the Son and the Father. So Jesus gladly submits himself to his Father and looks to him dependently as well. And so he prays and prays all the time, all the time, and about everything, and he presses his followers to do the same, to be people, men and women, of prayer. Okay, so that's the governing assumption. We're called to pray. I'm going to say something that will not surprise you, what what I'm going to say here. It shouldn't surprise you at all. Strong Christians pray more. That, that shouldn't surprise you, right? Strong Christians pray more. Here's the, now, the reason for that probably will surprise you. 
The reason that strong Christians pray more is because they realize how weak they are. That's why strong Christians pray more, because they realize how weak indeed that they are. They are growing, I say they because I'm not really there. <laughs> they really are, are growing in an understanding of, of what Jesus means when he says that we are to become like little children. And that's the, the, the spirit in which we are to come to him. And they understand their need, and so they come, and they come continually in prayer. Strong Christians are marked by prayer. You know what the, here's the sobering dark side of that statement. Mature Christians, you see, strong Christians, pray more. Immature Christians pray less. Why? Because we don't recognize our need. We don't really grasp it. We're not really hearing what Jesus says in the Beatitudes when he says, blessed are the, the poor in spirit who recognize their spiritual bankruptcy, who know that they can't do, a, they can't do squat in this life without leaning into him with all we are. And so weak, immature Christians are marked by a self-dependent prayerlessness. They're marked by all kinds of other things too in that self-dependency, but prayerlessness is certainly one thing. Well, Jesus calls us to pray. That said we're to do so in the right way, which then takes us to the second point, the problem with hypocritical prayer, verses 5 and 6. Let me read these again. And when you pray, you must not be like the hypocrites, for they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and at the street corners, that they may be seen by others. Truly I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you pray, go into your room and shut the door and pray to your Father who is in secret, and your Father who sees in secret will reward you. Okay, so what's going on here with the hypocritical prayer? Let's try and unpack this if we can. Why pray in this way? It has to do with who and what they are. Jesus labels them hypocrites. We talked about this last week. Literally, that meant a play actor, someone who wears a mask, who performs, and what they want is to be seen and noticed admired and praised for their performance. They are pretending to be something that they are not. They are literally a hypocrite in the original sense. And so that plays itself out in how they approach God in prayer. And Jesus paints two scenarios. One being uh, standing up front in the synagogue, leading in prayer. Now this is a real dynamic. That, that This is something that was, a, it was formal worship. Uh, there in a local synagogue where someone would be asked. It was an honor to be to stand up and be able to lead the people in prayer. It was an honor, but it was also fertile opportunity for temptation towards ostentatiousness and presumption, speaking in big lofty, heady terms and trying to impress your neighbor. And Jesus speaks against that. He also gives another example that is true to the time, and that is praying in a proud spirit on the street corner. Now again, as I said earlier, it was common at the time to be called to pray publicly morning, afternoon, and evening. So if you want to be seen, what you'll do is time your travel. When you know the call to prayer, when the trumpet is going to be blown, you're going to time your travel so that when that trumpet's blown, whatever time it is, you're going to be at a busy intersection of a street corner. 
So people can what? See you pray and hear you pray. And again, Jesus is speaking against that. A clarifier, it's not wrong. Jesus is not saying it's wrong to pray and to be seen. That's not what he's saying. He's saying it's wrong to pray in order to be seen. It has to do with the the purpose and the intent behind this. And my, my goodness, Jesus himself prays publicly. The apostles, the early church, um, the Psalms. We wouldn't have the Psalms if this wasn't the case. The result of this kind of prayer is, well, the reward consists of this. You want to be praised, you want to be noticed, you want to be seen, fine. That's what you'll get. And no more. That's it. No more. The alternative to this, as Jesus is imploring us to see, is the secret way of prayer. Uh, And again, this is driven by who is praying. A disciple, a follower of Jesus, one who wants to walk in his way. Or, as he alludes to the Father, then that tells us a child, an adopted child of God who wants to please the Father, who knows already, is confident and assured that he has the pleasure and love of his Father already. And so that that, that transforms then how we approach prayer. And what it means is then Jesus says, go to your room... Some of us as children have heard that a lot. Go to your room and close the door. Now this is a reference to a, likely a storage room in houses that were typical of the day. It was probably the only room in the house that had a door, given the architecture of the time. So it was the most private place to go. So the idea is, look, you want conversation with God. Then find, seek out the most private place so that you are unhindered by distraction. If that's what you really want, that's what you will pursue. And that's what he is encouraging here. And then the reward that flows from that, that again, as we talked about this last week, that Jesus, of course, is not speaking of anything that we merit, but rather this is all of God's mercy. But in that sense, there's this reward as a father longs to pour out blessing upon his children. This reward, well, John Stott describes it this way, the kind of reward that can come with praying with such a spirit. Stott writes, We are granted a strong assurance of his fatherhood and love. He lifts the light of his face upon us and gives us his peace. He refreshes our soul, satisfies our hunger, quenches our thirst. We know we are no longer orphans, for the Father has adopted us, no longer prodigals, for we have been forgiven, no longer alienated, for we have come home. This is the sort of a reward our Father delights to give us. I'm sure we've all heard the expression to put on airs, right? Uh, to put on airs. That has, by the way, the, the word airs has nothing to do with what you breathe into your lungs. It comes from the French word airs, which refers to um, appearances of, of, of pretense, of, of, of how we present ourselves, you might say. And uh, so we would, if you're putting on airs, you're trying to, you deem yourself to be better than others. You know, if, if you're in a, in a classroom setting, you think you know more than your teacher. If you're in an examination room, you think you know better than your doctor. If you're pulled over on the side of the road with the blue lights behind you, you think you know better than the policeman, which I wouldn't recommend any of those, really. And nor putting on airs when it comes to prayer. Some examples. How does this roll itself out? What Jesus is admonishing us, how he is admonishing us here. Well, I mean, you think in terms of uh, family devotions or of your community group, Sunday morning, 
or even big events like a national day of prayer or something like that. Look, all that to, to pray with other people can be a good thing. So long as we are guarding our hearts against twisting and contorting this beautiful privilege into becoming a platform to perform. Jesus is strongly speaking against that. But I would argue that this, if you drill down in what he is saying here, this has application not just to public prayer, but actually to private prayer as well. We are to come as we are. Right? That's an implication of what he is saying here. We are to come as children, trusting him, looking to him with empty hands, depending, looking for for what he will give, what he will provide, coming as we are in all our mess, like children, right? With snotty noses. Come to God with your snotty nose and your dirty fingers and your skin knees. Come as you are. Don't pretend. Don't wear the mask. Come as you are. That's what he's telling us here. Publicly, privately. He calls us to pray. Oh, that we would come in the right way. Now that said, there's yet another problem, another struggle, another issue that he is addressing here. Because see, the thing is, it is a universal impulse to pray. Atheists pray. They'll deny that. Agnostics will pray. They'll deny that. But it's a human impulse to pray. And so it's not just a Jewish thing. It's not just a churched people thing. So Jesus goes on further. He speaks beyond just in verses 5 and 6. He pushes on into verses 7 and 8. And he addresses the issue of Gentile prayer or pagan prayer. I'll explain that in just a minute, but let me read it. Again, verses 7 and 8. When you pray, do not heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do, for they think that they will be heard for their many words. Do not be like them. For your Father knows what you need before you ask Him. Okay, what's going on here? What's driving this kind of prayer is this. A certain view of God. It sees God as a, as, a, as a being who can be manipulated and managed. That He needs to be awakened. He needs to be badgered. He needs to be pressured into acting. And so in those, those days what you would do is you would pile on the titles. You would pile on the names, hoping that you'd get the attention of whoever it is that's listening. And while you're at it, you would also go into all the sacrifices, all the things that you have done in that God's name, because, of course, you see now, that God owes you, and He should answer your prayers. Well, that, my friends, is at best sub-Christian. In fact, I would go so far as to say anti-Christian. Jesus will have nothing to do with such an approach. He says, no, we are to come approaching our Father, not a being who is ignorant and needs to be informed, not a being who is hesitant and needs to be persuaded, but rather our Father who loves us and knows us so well and so deeply. And so he says, come and come like that. Don't come as they are coming. And by the way, here's another qualifier. There was one that I said earlier, the last point. There's one here. Jesus is not speaking against repetition in prayer. Jesus is not speaking against um, perseverance in prayer. My goodness, he taught that. He modeled that. 
And you see that again throughout the Psalms as well. What are you speaking against is coming with all words and no heart. With just a script. With just a script. Sarah and I, we just celebrated an anniversary this past week. Now she will be the first to tell you, if she's being honest, that I have messed up a lot through the years. I've made many, many mistakes. I've learned a couple things. And one of them would be this. That yes, while there are times when she and I are in conflict, while there are times that I I do need to think through what I'm going to say and how I'm going to say it before I just say it like verbal vomit, it happens. Um, While that is appropriate and necessary at times, that's not the norm. That's not what she wants from me. A pre-prepared script all the time. That's not the way a relationship works. She wants to hear me, my heart, what's going on, and I want to hear hers. Not a script, without any thought, without any heart. And it's something like that in prayer. It's something like that in prayer as, as well. How does this play it, itself out? He's not, our Lord is not interested in hypocrisy. He's, he's interested in, in, in us. Not just in, in, in a formula or a pre-prepared statement, but, but in, in us. Um, there is a place for liturgy and pre-prepared prayers and, and using hymns, and that's right, but not without reflection and mind and heart engagement. Now, I'm also going to go the other way and say this. When it comes to our more extemporaneous prayer, you know, there's no script, there's no thought. That can be just as bad because we devolve we, we, into to our religious, spiritual-sounding jargon. And we don't even think for a minute about what we're saying. I remember when I first became a Christian, just a quick aside, I know I'm running tight on time. The first time I heard the phrase, traveling mercies and a hedge of protection. As we were, uh, we were praying for a group of people that were going on, on, on a trip one weekend, and I'm a new Christian, I'm like, what in the world? What is that? And I'm like, I wouldn't want a hedge, I'd want a wall anyway. But, but I mean, we, we say these, I'm not saying there's anything wrong with that. If you like those phrases, that's fine, but just think about what you're saying. And all the other jargon that we use, you see, that can be just as mindless as a liturgical thing. You see, and and Jesus wants our hearts engaged in in, in prayer. I would just add this one last last thing pertaining to that, and that is our view of prayer, and you see it here, just in these two examples, is very much tied up in our view of who God is. Our view of what prayer is and our view of who God is are very much intertwined. And so I think sometimes the way we speak of prayer betrays something of who we think God is. For instance, I'll just use one example. For instance, I know we've all heard this, maybe even said it, be careful what you pray for, you might get it. As though, right, our prayer is like a magical incantation. And if you don't get the spell book just right, I mean, the whatever's out there, are going to slam you because you didn't do the spell just right. And then what else does that say? That's about prayer. What does that say about God? 
What does that say about God? Not a father. Some kind of monster. Jesus says again and again and again, He is your Father. He's calling us to pray. Oh, that we would do so in the right way. I've been um, rereading Paul Miller's wonderful book, A Praying Life, just in the last few days. And I really highly recommend it to you. Um, read you a quote from the, one of the early chapters. He, he speaks of, of, of the idea of our coming to see a prayer therapist. Um, you know, we, get, we need therapists for all kinds of things, speech therapy and physical therapy and all, all kinds of things. And he speaks kind of whimsically of, of an idea of, of a prayer therapist. And so here's the picture that he paints. Let's imagine you see a prayer therapist to get your prayer life straightened out. And the therapist says, let's begin by looking at your relationship with your Heavenly Father. What does it mean you are a son or daughter of God? You reply that it means you have complete access to your Heavenly Father through Jesus. You have true intimacy based not on how good you are, but on the goodness of Jesus. Not only that, Jesus is your brother. You are a fellow heir with him. The therapist smiles and says, that's right, you've done a wonderful job of describing the doctrine of sonship. Now tell me what it is like for you to be with your father. What is it like to talk with him? You cautiously tell your therapist how difficult it is to be in your father's presence, even for a couple of minutes. Your mind wanders. You aren't even sure what to say. You wonder, does prayer make any difference? Is God even there? And you feel guilty for your doubts and just give up. Your therapist tells you what you already suspect. Your relationship with your Heavenly Father is dysfunctional. You talk as if you have an intimate relationship, but you don't. Theoretically, it is close. Practically, it is distant. You need help. My friends, I think that diagnosis is true for no few of us here in this room, self-included. And it would be really well worth our facing that, that your relationship with your Heavenly Father is dysfunctional, and it's coming out in your communication with Him. See, the the beauty of it is, and I'm going to use this phrase, and I want you to hear it in, in in its literal sense, we can rest assured, we can rest assured with this confidence, this knowledge, that that the very one who spoke these words promises to help us. The very one who tells us to come to him in prayer and to do so in the right way promises to help us. He knows these temptations. Remember the God-man, fully God, fully human, the God-man knows very well what these temptations are towards hypocrisy, and pagan prayer. He knows exactly what it feels like. He also knows us very well. And he stands ready to help. We just have to go to him and ask. Let's pray. Lord, again, as uh, we started earlier, uh, teach us to pray. Um, it is so simple, it is so natural, but we make it so hard. Our desires are all twisted up and we're not very disciplined and our motives are out of whack and we ask that you'd help us to to look to you, to hear you, to learn from you, to come not as the play actor or the pagan, but as children. With all of our mess, with great trust, to come to you as we are, oh, would you teach us to pray. In your name we pray. Amen.
Well, we are continuing now here at the very end of our service, but continuing nonetheless with the giving, the tithes and offerings. This is part of the service of our, of our worship. So if I can ask our ushers to walk us through this time, I'm going to read to you these words from 1 Timothy chapter 6 and preface it, this reading by saying this, however you may be assessing your, uh, how shall I say, financial worth, your accounts and your possessions, let me assure you, when it comes to from a, an historical perspective and global perspective, we are all in this room doing very well. So this, with that in mind, hear what the Apostle Paul says in 1 Timothy chapter 6. As for the rich in this present age, charge them not to be haughty, nor to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches, but on God, who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. They are to do good, to be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share thus storing up treasure for themselves as a good foundation for the future so that they may take hold of that which is truly life. Let's give with that in mind. Of the wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable his judgment, how untraceable his paths. Who knows the mind of our God? Who can make counsel to him? Who has crazy God? Oh, 
now our Lord's benediction. Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all we ask or think, according to the power at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations, forever and ever. Amen. Now let me invite you to stay for this lunch that we are about to have. It's just right. If you haven't been to one of these before, we're heading down to the last door on the left down that hallway. If this is the first time you've been to one of these, we would want you to go right up to the uh, front of the line. If you've got children, of course, we'd ask you to go get them and then go to the front of the line. And speaking of children, if you're a parent here flying solo and you need an extra set of hands, ask for that when you get up there and they will make sure that you are cared for so that you don't have to do the wild octopus thing as you're moving uh, through that line. Um, there's overflow moving there to the right side if you want to head on over there. So we've got plenty of seating back there. Kids, 12 and under, you need to go through the line with your parents. Where you sit after that is on them. But as far as the food flow goes, uh, you're with them as you're moving through the line. Let me just say this one last thing. Uh, it was mentioned earlier, Micah is in the course of raising his support for Surge. I could imagine if you've got questions about what is he doing, what is he planning on doing for this upcoming trip, uh, this two months in the summer, seek out. You know, raise that hand. Come on, come on. Don't be shy. Going on a mission trip, you can't be shy. Anyway, just ask him. He's he's halfway really through the fundraising, right? All the way. Okay, well that would be two times halfway. All right. So just you know, how can we be praying for him? We're going to be talking about that more over the coming weeks, okay? Um, and in addition to that, find somebody that you don't know and sit with them, you know, because they don't know you. So you've got a you know mutual advantage, right? So uh, let me pray for us as we go. Father, thank you for this food. Thank you for supplying it. Thank you for your graciousness to us. We don't deserve this time. We would, goodness, don't even deserve to have this bountiful spread here in front of us, but you and your love and your mercy and grace and kindness to us have arranged for this. We pray that you'd help us to take advantage of it, that you would bless this time, uh, that friendships would be formed and deepened uh, through this uh, hour plus that we have together. In your name we pray. Amen.